Amen. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, worship team. Um, this is a really good worship set this morning. Thank you for that last song as well. Well, this morning we are in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 is where we're at this morning. We're looking at the parable of the tenants. We've been in this series where we're, where we're looking through and we're looking at um, the parables that Jesus taught. And we have been going through those for a couple months now. And, and now we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 21. And we're looking at a series of parables here uh, that will take us on into Matthew chapter 22 next week. But this week we're in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46 is where we're at this week. Uh, let, me, let me read that to you, and then we'll pray, and then we will, we will dive in. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone... It will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning and this opportunity for us to gather together, Lord, as the church, to come together to sing praises to you, Lord, to hear your word read. And now to hear your word preached, God. And as we open the text this morning, as we look at this parable, God, we ask that you would help us to understand what it means, as well as you would help us to apply it to our lives, both individually and to the life of our congregation, God. And Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I didn't buy my first house until I moved to Red Oak. I'd, I'd rented before that, and, and renting, if, if, you, if you've rented before, I'm sure many of you have before you've purchased your home, renting is great for a number of reasons. I mean, you don't, you don't have to pay for any of the repairs that, that take place at, at the home. You know, the landlord is responsible for that, and, and depending on where you live, if you live in an apartment complex or something like that, you, you don't have to cut your own grass and spend hours every single week doing that and, and keeping up the lawn maintenance. Someone else does that for you. And, and if you outgrow the place, I mean, you don't have to worry about if you can add on or not or finding a contractor, especially in this day and age, to, to do that and all the costs that, that happen to be associated with that. Uh, you just move to another place or move to another apartment. Renting is great, but it can also be limiting. 
I know it's obvious, but, but if you're renting something, you don't actually own that thing that you are renting. It's not your place, which means that you can't do with it what you want to do with it. And if you want to change something there, you have to get the permission of the person who owns the place. And, and even if that person gives you permission, it really doesn't make sense for you to make you know, big changes to the property in which you are living, right? You don't, you don't own the place which means that you can't sell the place. You can't recoup the money for the renovations that you have done. While it is a limitation, renting is great if you have the right mindset. It's when, it's when you go from thinking that you are the renter for, to being the owner or thinking that you are the owner, excuse me. It's, it's when you do that, that things go sideways a bit. Maybe you've been there for a long time. You, you've settled in. You, you don't think that you could ever live anywhere else and, and you feel like, man, this is... This is my place. You know, I've been here for 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, and you forget that you are just renting. You're sending your check somewhere, but you, know, you might as well be sending your check to the mortgage company. And you forget that you're renting. You think that it's yours, but it's not yours. It's somebody else's property. And, and as the owner, they are the ones who determine what you can and, and you can't do when it sells, for, for how much it is going to sell. They are the one who, who recoups the money from the sell, not you. Renting, leasing is great. It has its benefits as long as you keep the right perspective. And that's not only true when it comes to property, but to our life as well. You see, we often forget that we aren't the ones who are the owners of our life. The chief priests and the elders forgot who was in charge, who their owners were, and they ended up in a bad spot. Let me show you what I mean here with this parable. This week we're going to pick up where we left off last week. If you remember, we're in the series of parables. Jesus is addressing the, the chief priests. He's addressing the elders. We see the Pharisees are, are here in this uh, section as well. And if you remember, the chief priests and the elders, they tried to trap Jesus with a question about authority and their their trap ultimately failed, and, and instead of letting them just walk away, Jesus decides to go on the offensive, not to kick them while they were down, but to give them an opportunity to repent. And we explored the first parable in this series last week, the parable of the two sons, and this week we're moving into the next parable in this series, the parable of the tenants. And as we get into this parable, you're going to notice that, that like the last one, this parable is also centered around a vineyard. And if you realize Jesus used a lot of parables are centered around a vineyard. And this one is the case as well. And so why does he center this parable around a vineyard? Well, as Jesus has done in, in all of his parables, he seeks to connect his parables to the people that he is talking to. And that's a good practice, not only for preachers or for Sunday school teachers or Bible study leaders, but, but for all of us, right? If we're going to reach other people with the gospel or with God's word, we need to be able to connect with them. I know that you've been in a conversation with another person, and it seems like you're just, you're just talking past one another. That what you're saying is not really connecting with that person. And when that happens, you shouldn't just walk away. You shouldn't walk away frustrated and said you should seek to do some cultural analysis. And that's just the fancy way of saying that, that you have to work to understand the culture of the people that you are seeking to reach. You see, we're, we're all a part of a culture. It was true in Jesus' day, and this is why he is using this particular parable and these particular uh, images. And it's true in our day as well. A culture is simply just made up of a shared language or, or images or hopes and dreams. It, it can be summed up to say it is the way that we do things 
around here. If you want to reach your kids, if you want to reach your grandkids, if you want to reach your neighbors, if you want to reach your, your co-workers, anyone else in the community, well, you have to learn their language. You have to learn what, what matters to them, what their shared hopes and, and dreams are, what they value. And if you take the time to do some cultural analysis, then you're going to be in a better position not only to understand their, their struggles and, and temptations, but also how to relate the biblical truth to them in a way that will make an impact. And that's what Jesus does. We see him do that time and time again in these parables. And this text is no exception. And that's what we must do as well. And Jesus, he uses this image of the vineyard, which will be very familiar to the people of his day, very familiar to the chief priests and to the elders and to the Pharisees and all of those who are listening. And he takes this imagery and he seeks to make a point. Look at verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So in this parable, Jesus, he pictures this wealthy landowner who buys this property. He, he, he puts everything on the property that, that is necessary there to make wine. He has a vineyard and all the other stuff that, that goes along with that. Uh, this was a, an investment for this landowner. The vineyard, it would take several years in order to make a profit, but once this vineyard began to make a profit, it would make a profit for successive generations. Not just for him, but he's setting him, he, himself up as well as his family up for success here. The vineyard would take several years, and, and for whatever reason, this particular landowner decides, well, I'm going to go, and I'm going to go into another country. Maybe he was out looking for property to invest in and put this vineyard on. You know, we're not ultimately told, but, but he moves away from where this vineyard is, and as he moves away, he leases the vineyard to some other folks, some people who are going to work the vineyard, who are going to take care of the vineyard. The tenants were responsible for watching over the property, taking care of everything, working in the vineyard. In exchange, what they would do is when it, when it had some produce and when there was some production that was made, they would provide some to the landowner and they would keep some for themselves. It was really this win-win situation. It allowed them to survive and to make a little bit of money, to care for their family, and it and allowed the landowner to you know, make a good amount more money because, you know, the owner always makes more than the people who are working there on the land. But the tenants sought to void this lease agreement. Look at verses 34 and 35. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. So the years had gone by. You know, the vineyard begins to, to produce, and so now it is collection time. And so he sends some of his servants over there to collect his portion of the fruits. And when the servants arrived, they, they were met by some tenants who did not honor their agreement at all. Instead of recognizing they were the leasees, they felt like they were entitled to the whole entire vineyard. And when the servants came... They refused to give the landowner what was rightfully his. They tried to show him that they were the ones who were in control by assaulting his servants and even killing one of them. Now imagine the landowner's surprise when, when some of his servants return. They've been beaten and they don't, they don't bring everybody back. You know, one of them or 
multiple of them have been killed by these folks. Imagine his surprise when that happens. I'm sure that this guy is frustrated. I'm sure that this guy is, is angry. But he ends up demonstrating forbearance with the tenants. Instead of coming to them with, with, with a small militia of, of armed people and, and taking back his vineyard, the vineyard that was rightfully his, what does he do? Well, he ends up sending more servants. But this didn't phase the tenants. The tenants did the same to them. They assaulted the second group just as the first. Now it's clear that, that the tenants at this point, they are, they are dug in. They're saying, this is our land. We are not turning it loose. We are not giving you anything for it. They thought that it, it was theirs. And so what's the landowner going to do now? Well, two groups of people have, have been sent. Some people have been assaulted. Some people have been killed. What is the landowner going to do now? Well, he decides he's going to up the ante. He's going to send his son. And he thinks there in verse 37 that they will respect his son. But look at what happens in 38 and 39. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And so when the, when the tenants saw the son coming, they thought, man, the, the landowner must, must be dead. Right Here's his son, he's coming, he's, he's coming to collect his inheritance, he's coming to take over the vineyard, to take it from us. We own this vineyard, this vineyard is ours. And so they say, what are we going to do? Well, we're going we're gonna to kill this guy, he's the rightful heir. If he's gone, well, there's nobody to lay claim to it, the vineyard will be ours. And so they take him, they take him out of the vineyard, and they kill him. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that, that Jesus is painting a picture of Israel's history. God is the wealthy landowner who founded the nation of Israel and gave them a land to live in. And God didn't just lease the land to them. God made a covenant with these people. And He expected them to honor this covenant, to worship Him, to bring Him glory by living in the land according to His will. But Israel, if, if you read through the Old Testament, you know that Israel did not always do that. They did not always honor God's covenant. They did not always seek to bring God glory. Instead, they sought to live according to their own way, according to their own wisdom, according to their own will. And God has made a covenant with them. He's not just going to walk away from this covenant with them. These are His people. This is His land. But, but He doesn't come you know, with a heavy hand. And say, so what does He do? Well, He sends servants... He sends prophets to come and to preach to these people. To tell them to turn back to the Lord. To tell them to, to continue to follow Him. To point out their sin and to, to call them back into relationship with God. Sometimes that worked. Sometimes that didn't work. Sometimes they isolated those prophets. Sometimes they beat those prophets. Sometimes they killed those prophets. People ultimately refused to listen. And they were cast out of the land. We know that. And then they were brought back into the promised land as well. The Israelites got it wrong. And they got it wrong because they thought that they were the ones who owned the land. They thought they were the ones who owned 
the nation. They thought that they were the ones who owned their own life. God sent prophet after prophet to tell them that, look, I am your owner. I'm a good and benevolent owner. I'm a generous and and gracious owner who exercises mercy, but I am your owner nonetheless. The parable is a statement, is an indictment on Israel's history, but, but it's not just a history lesson that Jesus is seeking to teach here. Jesus is also seeking to indict the present leadership of Israel. He's not just commenting on their history. Through the parable, Jesus is directly confronting the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees. Look at the text beginning in 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in His eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And the chief priests, they, they perceived the situation correctly. Jesus was speaking about them. This parable was directed at them. He was condemning them for their actions, for the way in which they were leading Israel, just like the other leaders in the past were leading Israel. They were were leading them in a way that they thought that they were the ones who owned Israel. They thought they were the ones who were in control. They thought they were the ones who could call the shots. They thought they were the ones who could determine how the people should live, what the people should do, how they should worship God, and they were really doing all of this stuff, not for God's glory, but they were doing it for their glory. They were the ones who wanted to be in control and in power, and Jesus is directly confronting them. Yes, God does use us for ministry. He does use people throughout history for ministry. He uses us today for ministry. He's purposed to use each and every single one of us to do the work of ministry. You see, if you are a Christian here today, you have been given spiritual gifts, and God expects you to employ those gifts in His church. In Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, we read this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Each one of us has been given a gift, right? You look at Romans chapter 12, you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you look at Ephesians chapter 4, you see that there are many, 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 many different gifts that each one of us have been given. We've all been called to serve in a variety of different ways, and we should utilize these gifts in order to serve the body of Christ. If we don't utilize those gifts, well, we're not operating in the way in which God desires, which displeases Him, as well as it is forcing the church to limp along because they are missing a body part. Each of us having given gifts, and some of those gifts are gifts for leading. In Ephesians 4.11, we learn that He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. These are gifts for leading and teaching, but, but what comes next in that, that section of Scripture is important in verse 12, we are told why these gifts, these people were given to the church. It is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. You see, God gifts us, 
and provides leaders not to run things according to their own desires, not to act as the owners, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that we can all work together to resemble Christ. You see, no man owns the church. No man owns God's people. Leaders are given so that they can lead according to, their, to, to God's wisdom, not their own wisdom. To accomplish God's means, not their own means. Right? We are to accomplish God's purpose, which is to bring Him glory through a church that resembles His Son. The chief priests and the elders, they, they had it all wrong. Right? They thought they were the ones who were in control when really God is the one who is in control. They thought that they were the owners of the vineyard instead of the stewards of the vineyard. They were, thought they were the ones who were seeking fruit for their own kingdom when they should have been helping the people to produce fruit for God's kingdom. That's what leaders should be doing. And Jesus condemns their actions. Ironically, they, they condemn themselves. Look at verse 41. In response to Jesus' question in verse 40 about what's going to happen to those who killed the owner's son, they say this, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. You see, leaders don't lead according to God's wisdom. Leaders who don't lead according to God's wisdom will be removed from their position of leadership. Not only is this passage about leaders, but it's a passage about all of us. Right? If, if you are a believer, then if you call yourself a Christian, you were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, we read this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And so glorify God in your body. You see, Jesus gave Himself for you. Jesus' body was broken for you. Jesus' blood was spilt for you. You don't own your body. You don't own your life. You are not your own master. I know that's hard to hear, especially in a day and age in which we live. Right? We are told over and over again, you know, your body, your choice. It's, it's our life and we're to make something of it. We are the captain of our own ship. But that couldn't be further from the truth. It's not our body. It's God's body. It's not our life. It is God's life. We are not the captain. God is the captain. God is the one who owns us. He has the right to direct us. After all, we are bought with a price. Jesus gave His life for us. That idea, that concept that, that we're bought is important. You see, apart from Jesus, we are not free. We have one of two masters, right? Our master is either Satan or our master is Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, we learn that, that because of Jesus, we have actually been delivered from the domain of darkness. Not, not from our own domain, not from going around, walking around, doing what we want to do, right? This is oftentimes how culture depicts that, that we are our own master. We can do what we want. We can create our own life. We can do everything. No, that is not true. You're either owned by Satan or you're owned by Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, implying that we were a part of the domain of darkness. We are transferred 
us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. We exist in one kingdom or another. Either Jesus is your master or Satan is your master. Those who are believers, they are blessed to live in the kingdom of God. They are blessed to live under His dominion, which means that Jesus is our King. He is the one who has the right to our lives. Right? We are not autonomous people who go through life as citizens of our own kingdom. We like to think that. We like to act like that. The culture in which we live believes and pushes that idea all the time. But it is not true. And the quicker that we realize that, the better position that we will be in. If you call yourself a Christian, it is your duty to submit to the King who owns you. You must recognize that Jesus is who He is. He is not your homeboy. And Jesus is not the man upstairs. Jesus is your King. He is the one who owns you. And you work for Him. Working for Jesus is not difficult, right? We might hear that and we think, well, man, Jesus is just this authoritarian guy. Like, no, that's, that is not the case. Jesus tells us, look, I am not a hard taskmaster. If you picked up the books that we have in the lobby for you to pick up, gentle and lowly, you, you, would, you would read that. You would realize that. You would hear time and time again, chapter and chapter and chapter. Scripture, as the author of that book, pulls those Scriptures out and, and looks at them. That Jesus is not a hard taskmaster. That Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. That He doesn't seek to weigh us down. He doesn't seek to, to beat us up. He is not a hard or harsh taskmaster. He is a loving King who deeply cares about the citizens of His kingdom. But it is His kingdom that we belong to. And we must realize that. For those who don't accept that God is the one who owns us will be crushed by Jesus. Look at the text again, starting in verse 42. Jesus quotes these Scriptures for us, and notice what He says in verse 44. Have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected have become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And here's the key. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Not only is this a parable of an indictment of Israel's present leaders, it is also a look into Israel's future. Jesus is the Son who is killed. He is the stone who is rejected. And even though He was rejected and killed, God's purpose will be fulfilled. He will be made the cornerstone. The one upon whom the entire building is built. He holds it all together. God's plan to win a people for His Son, His plan to build a fruitful kingdom, will be realized with or without the present leadership. He will take the vineyard and the construction work away from the current leaders and He will give it to others who will cultivate the vineyard and who will build in the way that He desires them to build with His will, with His wisdom, and in a way that produces fruit for His glory. And that not only goes for leaders, but for all of those who reject Jesus. The cornerstone will crush you if you don't submit your life to Him. But on the other hand, those who do submit their life to Him, the cornerstone will build you up. 
He will cause you to produce fruit for His kingdom. And so where are you at this morning? Do you recognize that Jesus is your owner? Have you submitted to Him as your King? Do you believe He is the one who has the right to direct and guide your life? Or are you trying to go at it on your own? Are you, are you trying to lead your family? Are you trying to lead your ministry according to your own will and according to your own wisdom? Are you pulling in the world's wisdom when it comes to that? Have you rejected Jesus outright? Are you still trying to hold on to your life as if though you are the one who is in control, as if though you are the one who is the owner? Where are you at this morning? If you haven't submitted to Jesus, we are told that the cornerstone will crush you. But if you do submit to Him, He will build you up. You will experience a fruitful and abundant life. A life that is pleasing to Him. A life lived in His kingdom for His glory for all of eternity. This morning, that's how you can respond. You can respond in one of two ways. You can respond by believing in Jesus. Believing that He is the King of this world who owns you, or you can reject that. My prayer is that you would respond by believing that. And if you, if you do believe that, today is an opportunity for you to say, God, I'm taking, taking my hands off of my life. I'm going to submit myself to You. I'm going to praise and glorify You for, for who You are. I'm going to give my life over to you and allow you to do with it what you desire to accomplish your will for my life in this world. And this morning, if you're here and you're hearing this for the first time, now's an opportunity for you to truly to, to, to come to Jesus, to sum, submit to Him. He is the Savior who has given His life for you. And we can respond to that by believing in Him as our Lord and as our Savior. In a moment after I pray, Nathan and the praise team are going to come, they're going to sing, and it's an opportunity for us to respond. To respond by submitting our life to the King. Either today as believers, or today for the first time as those who are coming to Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You for this day. We thank You for this opportunity to open Your Word, to hear from it, Lord, to learn that, that we are not the ones who own us, which admittedly grates against us. It presses against our own natural desires. But God, that is what Your Word does. And that's why we open Your Word and we learn from Your Word. Because You tell us how we should think. You tell us how we should live. And today we learn that we should think and we should live as if you are the one who is the king. As if you are the one who owns us and guides and directs us. And so Lord, we ask that you would help us, God. Whether we are believers here today who've been believers for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, that you would help us to daily submit our lives, our plans, our will to yours. And Lord, if there's someone here today or someone watching today who, who doesn't know you, who's hearing the gospel for the first time, that Jesus has died for them, that they would submit their life to Him, 
that they would be covered by His blood, that His sacrifice would be applied to their life. Their relationship with the Father would be restored today. Lord, we pray that You might work in their life so that they would understand that, that they would see that, that they would press back against the culture today and turn to Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. In all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.